This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, filling in for your usual host, Mr. Joel Hilliker. And with me is our panel. Here in the studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, we have Andrew Miller. Hello. And from our office in the UK is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Hello. And from our office in Jerusalem, Israel, is Brent Noctegal. Good to be with you. Well, we've reported many times over the years on the various steps by Iran to illegally become a nuclear power. And this week, another troubling development showed just how close the Iranians are to achieving this milestone. For this, we'll go to Brent Noctegal. Last week on the program, we were talking about how uh, Iran now has enough weapons grade, well, not weapons grade, but enough material at 60%. Uh, enriched uranium to uh, produce a nuclear weapon. And it's just a short technical step of a couple of weeks uh, purification to get to weapons grade, something that's incredibly dangerous as, as they have become now a nuclear weapons uh, threshold state. Um, and the one thing that that the world has going for it right now, or had going for it before the events this week, was that a lot of the the push towards weapons grade could be tracked via security cameras that the IAEA, the International Watchdog for uh, Atomic Energy, um, though they had cameras set up so that they could view when Iran did decide to push towards weapons grade. This has now largely changed as of announcements that was made on Thursday, where the Iranians said that they would shut off, I believe it was about 27 of their cameras, uh, surveillance cameras that the IAEA had set up at different facilities to ensure that they could track the enrichment and other processes of of developing a, a nuclear weapon. Um, but now the Iranians, they, they already shut off two earlier on in the week. Um, this comes as, as the IEA censured Iran for not coming clean on its past um, nuclear dimensions to its, to its uh, uh, nuclear, nuclear program. Um, and now Iran has basically said, well, if you're going to say those things about us, then we're just going to cut off the way that you can verify how far along we are towards a nuclear weapon. And uh, Rafael Marino uh, Grossi, he's the director general of the IAEA this week, he said that this decision was a fateful blow to any type of nuclear agreement between Iran and the, and the West. He said, when we lose this, then it's anybody's guess, meaning that there is no way now that Iran has shut off the cameras to um, determine when they are pushing towards weapons grade uranium um, that would be used in a nuclear weapon. So the Iranians are uh, obviously just trying to hide their illegal nuclear work here. Very alarming to see that happening. It looks like they could be just a very short time away now from having viable nuclear weapons, and the world wouldn't even know about it with so many of these cameras being turned off. Um, In the past, Iran has made no attempt to hide the fact that enemy number one for them is Israel. They've they've said that the Jewish nation needs to be wiped off the map and other statements along those lines. What can you tell us about how Israel is taking this news of Iran's rapid progress toward nuclear weapons? Well, they are, as I think I said last week, they're 
conducting numerous uh, uh, military and air force um, maneuvers to try and determine whether they can strike Iran. Um, there was just a report out this week that said that the fighter jets from Israel would not have to refuel on the way to Iran and back um, for such a strike. It talked about how Israel can now put a one-ton bomb uh, inside its jets, its fighter jets, to carry that o- over to Iran. So there's a lot of Israel's um, stories going to Israeli press about Israel, how Israel is preparing to strike uh, Ir- Iran. And I mean, I, I do think that Israel is at that really critical decision point, and I think they might be already past it. Uh, there's a couple of facilities of the Iranians that are underground, and that's where they enrich a lot of their uranium. Um, and so whether Israel can even get to those right now, I mean, Israel is quite, quite good at uh, not necessarily, I would say, bombing from the sky, but but infiltrating covertly some of these facilities and blowing them up from the inside. They've done that in the past. However, it's a dangerous gamble to be relying on that. And and that seems to be what we're where we're at. I think with this statement from the IAEA Director General and then also 30 of the 35 UN Security Council states, they came out on Thursday and they condemned what Iran did. Um, but that was it. That was it. There's no, you know, you've got to stop right now. We're going back to sanctions right now. Credible military threat has returned. None of that. Basically a piece of paper coming across saying, and this is in response to Iran, um, not only shutting off their cameras, they alerted the IAEA that their advanced centrifuges, uh, the I think the IR6s, um, they can produce, um, they're 10 times faster than the ones Iran had uh, using, were using 10 years ago. So basically, these are illegal uh, by the nuclear deal. They can't use them. And they said, we've just set up another two cascades of these. That means that these are the things that produce the highly rich uranium. So we're going to shut off the cameras. We're setting up the high-speed centrifuges. What are you going to do about it is basically what they're saying. And Israel is obviously preparing to strike. But again, I think that's a really big gamble to just hedge your bets that Israel would able be able to do something uh, at this point. It's, it's very dangerous, I think, completely. And I think, you know, you have... The Iran the Iranians know that the Americans are still willing to negotiate with them. It, this to them is a negotiating tactic. At least they would say that. Um, and indeed, it probably is both. It's it's probably both heighten up the nuclear blackmail, get the United States to um, back down on its on its decision not to remove the terrorist designation from the IRGC. That's what the Iranians want. Um, but it it does get past the actual reality of the situation. And that is that Iran is so close to having a nuclear weapon and that right now it can't be verified whether they have one or not. That's that's where we're, we're standing right now, a dangerous position for the world. Very dangerous, yes. And, and, you know, seeing Iran so close to having nuclear weapons, that's something that the trumpet watches very closely because it's creating conditions for really the main spark that we expect to ignite so much world chaos. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we watch the Iranians because um, they form uh, the very center of a biblically prophesied alliance for the end time that does set off World War Three, the very beginning stages of it. 
and that that really does start the, the events that lead up to that starts with a, a a push a pushy foreign policy from the Iranians against the Europeans and what that push entails that's the biblical language they push at the Europeans led by Germany and what does that entail uh, obviously having a nuclear weapon and threatening to use it is something that would really motivate the Europeans. There's probably other details that go into this push. However, that's what we expect, and that's what Mr. Flurry has said for the past 30 years. Watch Iran because they're going to become more and more pushy. And that's what and that's what a a becoming a new a member of the nuclear club does. Look at what Russia is doing right now. Yes, I think they've been shown up as as probably more of a second-rate military power involving conventional weapons than people probably thought. However, they've got nuclear weapons. So that stands behind them. And every decision that the West makes, it has to be um, inside that calculus you have to ask, will Russians use a nuclear weapon if we do this? Now, we've been, the world has been at liberty to act against the Iranians um, with a little bit more uh, strength if they choose to do so, because you don't have that credible uh, nuclear weapon threat returning to you. So with a nuclear umbrella like this, meaning that they have this in their arsenal, how much it, it just makes them be so much more pushy in every other way. They can strike Israel more firmly. Because then Israel has to determine and really negotiate and decide how we're going to respond based on we could get nuked. So this is a very dangerous situation. And I think when Iran gets to have a nuclear weapon, or even as they are right now, it makes them a pushier foreign power. And and that's what the Bible says is going to be the hallmark of their foreign policy. And and the Bible also indicates that they're not going to be afraid to use such things as well. Um, And the world knows that. Well, Israel knows that. Israel's not worried about Russian nuclear weapons right now. They're worried about Iranian nuclear weapons because, as we I think we covered last time, Iran does isn't isn't really motivated by self-preservation. It doesn't matter to them if they use use nuclear weapons on a state that has nuclear weapons. Um, even if Iran gets destroyed, Ayatollah Khomeini, um, the Earlier, Ayatollah said, let Iran burn, let our land burn, famously said that. I don't mind, he said, if our land burns, as long as we can push the world towards this war that would bring back their messianic figure. Um, So Iran getting a nuclear weapon and thumbing its nose at the world right now as it pushes towards it really does uh, allow them to become this pushy foreign power that we expect based on the Bible. What reading would you recommend for any listeners who would like to uh, to study this in that prophetic context that you mentioned there? I, I think they need to read Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door by Mr. Gerald Flurry. People's attention is rightfully focused on Russia and Ukraine right now, but there, there is a scarier threat, I believe, at least in, in, according to Europe in many ways and, and, um, and Israel, and perhaps even as far as the United States eventually, if they get their ballistic missile technology there from from Iran. So don't don't let that don't let Ukraine overshadow what's happening here. Well, thanks very much for that, Brent. We will leave a link in the show notes to that booklet by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. It's called Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. For this next story, we'll take a look at the United Kingdom, where political pressure on Prime Minister Boris Johnson reached a climax this week. For this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. I think he certainly hopes that it has reached a climax and isn't going to uh, get any worse for him. 
But yes, we had uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson come very close to being booted out of office this week when he faced a vote of confidence on Monday night. So right at the heart of this vote of confidence is something called, this has been, been known as Partygate. So with Partygate, Boris Johnson, uh, he created all of these pretty tyrannical lockdown laws that put the entire country under house arrest that you know said you could not it, you know, it, it, it severely limited even what you could do in your own home uh it banned people meeting up outside with even just one other person uh you know it, it saw police going around putting police tape on park benches and threatening people with arrest if they had a if they sat down and had a rest while they were out jogging arguably the most tyrannical laws in britain's history uh, he put these in place. And then with Partygate, what we found is that he and just about everybody in government flagrantly ignored him, ignored them. So it goes right the way from, from him on down. I think there are at least half a dozen, maybe up to even close to a dozen parties that he personally attended during lockdown. The person in charge of drawing up lockdown laws has been found guilty of breaking lockdown laws. The person in charge of ethics for government officials has been found breaking lockdown laws. It's pretty much harder to find anybody who is involved in these laws uh, that, that didn't break them. So uh, the prime minister has become the first prime minister in British history to have been found to have broken the law while in office, he received a fine for breaking that. It's really a travesty, if not a crime, that he didn't receive more fines. Uh, you know, somehow these same police officers that uh, flew drones in the middle of nowhere to track down people who might be walking a bit too far from their house uh, suddenly found themselves a whole lot more lenient when it was the prime minister accused of, of having raucous parties where people were bringing in suitcasefuls of alcohol. So, uh, there's no surprise that with this kind of story, uh, there was a lot of opposition. A really kind of united opposition from uh, a whole range of different different quote, different parts sectors. Uh, the lockdown zealots are angry because they believe he shouldn't have been breaking lockdown. Um, the uh, those that are maybe a bit more sane um, are angry because they didn't want the rules in there in the first place, and uh, certainly then. You know, it, it, to see the Prime Minister flagrantly breaking his own rules shows that uh, he and everybody else in the government were not duped by uh, some of this anti... or the, the, the kind of the COVID propaganda. They knew that there was no risk. They understood the risks. They went ahead and had parties anyway, and they locked the rest of the country down anyway. So anyway, because of this, there is a, uh, a big outcry, and that kind of, like you said, culminated this week on Monday evening with a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister. So the way this works is if you have more than a certain number of Conservative MPs write, send a letter in saying that they've lost confidence in the Prime Minister, it triggers this vote, I think it was around 50. So enough wrote in uh, and they held the vote. He won 211 votes to 148. So it was just Conservative MPs from his own party uh, that were voting there and that's a, a pretty narrow vote. It meant that either the payroll vote turned against him, so that is people who are serving ministers in this own government turned against him, or 75% of the non-payroll vote, 75% of the people that are just serving in parliament and don't have any other jobs as ministers uh, voted against him. So you know, the vast majority of people not being paid by him voted against him, basically. 
so a, it's a shocking uh, level of, of opposition to him and uh, that uh, there are previous prime ministers that have resigned after receiving that kind of quote-unquote win. So that's where we are with, with Britain this week, where we did very, come very close to losing the prime minister. It does seem like th that they took their shot at him, they missed, he survived. According to current rules, he can't face another no-confidence vote within the party for another year. Uh, so it does seem like, unless they can kind of pull something else out, uh, he's going to move forwards now. But uh, it still shows a, you know, these votes are pretty, pretty rare. Uh, but we had quite a few of them with Theresa May. And now we've, we're in the same kind of situation with Boris Johnson. So it really does highlight, I think, the kind of the leadership crisis that we've got going on in the United Kingdom right now. Yeah, this is just an astonishing story. You know, these uh, these double standards and just very selective enforcement of laws, just uh, egregious kind of behavior here on, you know, from some of the, the highest authorities in the land. Um, what can you tell us? You mentioned there the leadership crisis in Britain that this points to. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think it, it really does uh, show some major character flaws uh, at the heart of leadership, and not just with the prime minister, uh, you know, I don't, I, I, maybe I don't want to make it an attack on him personally. I think one of the things that makes this leadership crisis so acute, and perhaps the reason why he held his job, is uh, who do you get to replace him? And there's no one really, I don't think, at the top of the Conservative Party, at the top of politics, that would have handled uh, the COVID crisis in a significantly different way. And in fact, the leading contender to uh, replace Boris Johnson and who was kind of hoping to get his job if he was kicked out uh, is Jeremy Hunt, who throughout the, the, the kind of the COVID pandemic was saying, well, we need to do more to copy the, the Communist Party in China. We need to be forcibly removing people from their homes and putting them in camps. Uh, we need to have mandatory vaccinations. So, you know, where where do you go? And like it's, when you look at, say, some of this corruption and he, he's breaking the law, he's not getting the fines, even though the police were ultra strict with giving fines to other people. You know, that reflects on the judiciary, that reflects on the police. There's a whole load of prophecies in the Book of Amos that just talk about corruption in the ruling classes and different standards being applied to to the powerful and the, the not powerful and to the rich and the poor. And that is exactly what you see going on. In, in Britain right now. If you're wealthy and you've got a lot of power, you're judged by a very different set of rules to, to somebody who you know, was threatened with arrest for going out in their own front garden during the COVID pandemic. Uh, I think the, the, one of the, we've drawn a lot of attention to 2 Kings 14, that this, this prophecy of uh, a modern Jeroboam II that God uses to save the modern nations of Israel. And one of the things that it mentions there is that there's no helper for Israel. No, there's, there's nobody else that is waiting there to, to step forwards and fix things. I think you certainly see this in Britain and you see this in Australia, you see this in Canada, you see this in New Zealand. Uh, you know, there is nobody else there. And then Isaiah chapter three just is another prophecy that describes this general dearth of leadership just about everywhere. So uh, you know, we see ourselves, I think we see Bible prophecy very clearly reflected in what we're going through with our nations. And then... Um, in some ways, though, this is a good thing. You know, the, one of the most fundamental lessons that God is teaching us through Bible prophecy is that there is no hope in man, that we need to stop looking to men for solutions. We need to stop looking to ourselves for solutions. We need to stop looking to the leaders that we select for solutions. The answer comes from looking to God. 
to looking to him, to looking to the Bible, to looking to, to his plan. And that's the main takeaway here. And I wrote more on this in an article that we've got on our website, Wanted uh, a Light for Britain, that kind of ties this more into that, that overall plan. We will leave a link in our show notes to Wanted, A Light for Britain, and also the uh, article called No Helper for Israel, which gets into more of the prophecies that, that Mr. Palmer just mentioned there. We thank you very much for that. For the next story, we'll take a look at China and its deepening inroads in Cambodia. For this, we'll go to Mihailo Zekic. Yeah, on Wednesday, Chinese and Cambodian officials broke ground on a Chinese-funded upgrade of a Cambodian naval base. This would be the Reem Naval Base, which is on the Gulf of Thailand, a body of water adjacent to the South China Sea. And this is putting a, raising a lot of eyebrows in the international community. In 2019, the Wall Street Journal uh, wrote a report citing U.S. intelligence that this Reem naval base was apparently part of a agreement between China and Cambodia to become a Chinese naval base for the People's Liberation Army. And both China and Cambodia deny this as, as they would. But if this were to be true, this would be the first... Uh, uh, or second naval base that we know of that Chinese China is setting up outside of its own borders after one they have in Djibouti in East Africa. So this would be a significant step for expanding Chinese power abroad. And it would also be the first, uh, again, that we know of such base that China would be setting up in Southeast Asia in in its own backyard. Obviously, uh, Djibouti is uh, uh, very far away from China, and it's not like that China can flex its muscles as much as it can in East Asia. But with this example, we see that China itself is, uh, like it, it has in, in different ways before, starting to spread its uh, influence into neighboring countries more and more to the point where now it's hosting troops abroad. So this is, uh, it is a big win for China, obviously, to be able to establish a second overseas base in, in a foreign country. Uh, but it's also a big blow to the United States. Could you talk a little bit about that, specifically in relation to U.S.-Cambodian ties? Um, of course. Well, uh, well, Cambodia, of course, used to be a, a communist country just like China. It's... Um, uh, dictator Pol Pot is uh, who ruled in the 70s is recognized as one of the most uh, f- and, uh, nasty dictators that uh, of the 20th century um, is responsible for the uh, Cambodian genocide where some people estimate that uh, a quarter of uh, the pre Pol Pot population of Cambodia died just in the various exterminations. And Cambodia and China weren't per se uh, extremely close Um uh, relations are complicated in that part of the world, but ever since uh, the communists left Cambodia, uh, it's been sort of pursuing a slightly more uh, liberal direction. I guess you could say it's had uh, a prime minister that's been ruling there for a long time as an authoritarian, but it's a lot better than Pol Pot. Um, but now, uh, in, in a sense, we're seeing that uh, Cambodia is starting to turn to countries like China more, and it's not just Cambodia, too. Other um uh, powers in the area, like the uh, junta ruling in Burma right now, or or Myanmar, they uh, they're not particularly close with China either. But with the West condemning their military coup, they are they're starting to look to China as well. Now, China, of course, has uh, is trying to get more influence in 
the South China Sea area, Southeast Asia. It's gotten into spats with uh, countries like the Philippines, Vietnam. But here we're seeing that some uh, Southeast Asian countries, rather than seeing China as a threat, they're seeing it as a partner to work with. And this is important for America because the South China Sea is one of the most pivotal uh, trade routes in the world. Uh, we had an article, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Joe Fleury, wrote in July 2016 called China is Steering the World Towards War, where uh, he cited an estimated uh, $5.3 trillion uh, worth of dollars of trade that went through that port annually. Now, that statistic is a year old and or several years old, I mean, and who knows what COVID's done to that. But regardless, it's still an important trade route. Uh, it connects the uh, big economies of the Indian Ocean area, like India, like some of the Arab states with East Asia with uh, and the big economies there. Uh, Australia, of course, is also nearby. Um, so it is a very important trade route. And for the longest time, America has been the country that's had the most influence over there through its military partnerships with countries like the Philippines or even Japan, which is a little bit further out. And not this, America still has a presence in those countries, but we're seeing China get more and more of a presence in the region, and there isn't too, too much that America can do about it. So it's starting to look like the levels of power and which countries are most influential in the area may soon turn. Right. Yes. And and the U.S. has invested all kinds of resources specifically into Cambodia as well, even even playing a big role in the construction of the very ream naval base that China is now moving into. So that's a just a big blow to American efforts to kind of build influence there in Cambodia. And, and as you explained, it is just part of this overall shift in power around the South China Sea, away from American influence and dominance and toward Chinese influence and dominance. So we will be sure to leave a link to Mr. Flurry's article, China is Steering the World Toward War, in the show notes for today's episode. And it really goes through all of the, uh, the relevant Bible prophecies there. Well, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Mihailo. We'll take a look now at the United States, where hearings are underway about the January 6th violation of the Capitol. For this, we'll turn it over to Andrew Miller. Yeah, these January 6th hearings are just kind of like the, the story that just won't die. I've lost track of how many January 6th panels there have been now. This was a, a big story, I think, earlier in the year with another panel they had. But they, they keep resurrecting it, and they just started yesterday with their, their latest iteration of the January 6th hearings, where they're bringing in many people to testify, as always, um, it's mostly police officers and uh, other people who uh, are claiming to be victims of the protest on that day. They almost never give any of the, the protesters uh, a platform to tell their side of the story. But uh, the things are ongoing. But yesterday we heard we heard testimony from Representative Bernie Thompson. He's a, a Democrat from Michigan who uh, who basically gave the opening monologue uh, introducing uh, what these hearings that are going to be unfolding over the next few days uh, are supposed to be about. And this is what he said. He said, when the United States was stormed and burned in 1814, foreign enemies were responsible. After the Civil War, when American citizens had taken up arms against this country, Congress adopted a new oath to make sure no person who had supported a rebellion could hold a position of public trust. 
But unlike in 1814, it was domestic enemies of the Constitution who stormed and occupied the Capitol. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup to overthrow the government. It represents Trump's last stand to halt the transfer of power. And so he's really struck at the core there in the opening monologue of what the, the Democrats are trying to uh, accomplish with this, uh, particularly when we said no person who had supported a rebellion could hold a position of trust. So the, the hearings are basically trying to claim that uh, Donald Trump is at the center of the mayhem. I think that's actually that, that quote at the center is from a, another person who spoke uh, about the uh about the hearings that day, because I said if they can if they can approve that Donald Trump is at the center of an attempted coup to overthrow the government, then they can use the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to bar him from ever holding any public office in the United States ever again legally. And so uh, that, that's that's why this story never keeps going away. You'd think after you'd think after like the, the fifth or uh, or however many. uh different hearings they've had over this that they have said all there is to say. But they, they haven't proven that Donald Trump was at the center of the investigation yet. And until they can do that, there's always a chance that he could get elected uh, again. So the goal of the leftists clearly, uh, as you said, is just to sideline President Trump. Um, you also mentioned that the protesters themselves are not really being given a platform to explain their side. So maybe you could walk us through their side of things, just the aim of what the protests were. What were they specifically hoping to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, well, there was there was about 250,000 people there that day, uh, and, and only about 100 of them have been convicted of any form of, uh, of violence or destruction of property. So the vast majority of them were peaceful. Uh, Really interesting is before, I guess they they subpoenaed Dr. Peter Navarro to come to these hearings. And I guess they're, they're claiming that he didn't respond to that subpoena in time. So he was actually arrested at the beginning part of this week um, and, and is out now. But uh, I think his story is really key to understanding what the protests were about. And he's been, he was treated horribly. He was on Tucker Carlson earlier this week where they said that they they arrested him. They put him in, in leg irons. They put him in solitary confinement. They denied him a lawyer. They denied him actually even some food and water for a while. Um, and uh, he, the way he phrased it is that they really treated him like an Al-Qaeda terrorist. Uh, and then uh, and now that he's out, he went and talked about how badly he was treated on Tucker Carlson. So the Justice Department's even looking at putting a gag order on him so he can't talk uh, about how badly he was treated uh, until these hearings are over, at least. But he is really center and un central in understanding what happened on these hearings, because uh, Dr. Navarro, he authored a three part report on election fraud, uh, published two of the parts before the January 6th protest, and then one part just a couple days afterwards. And um, if you can get your hands on that three-part report, it is really one of the most comprehensive uh, analyses of why the election was stolen from Donald Trump. I think probably only uh, Dinesh D'Souza's 2,000 Mules even comes close to being as comprehensive as that report was. Uh, and so he was hoping to use that report. He actually had a hundred um, Congress people, uh, congressmen, uh, ready 
to uh, to go through his reports and contest the election on January 6th so it wouldn't be certified. That was his plan. He's like, says, well, if I can put together this report, prove the election was stolen, uh, have the congressman go through it and then um, not certify the election, then Biden will never take office. And uh, it was a the plan. The plan was going according to uh, exactly how Dr. Navarro wanted it until the protest happened because the protest happened while the hundred congressmen he'd lined up were starting to discuss the information he'd presented. And so as soon as the protest happened, uh, Congress was adjourned. They went out and then everyone was afraid when they came back that if they continued their discussion, there was going to be a violent insurrection. And so Dr. Navarro's plan never went through. And you see, so those protests that happened at January 6th, that they benefited Joe Biden and the Democrats more than they benefited anyone, which is why many people believe that there were uh, like FBI infiltrators behind it, because it was like this hurt Donald Trump and Dr. Navarro so much that the, this violence, it was either done by FBI infiltrators or a couple dozen Trump supporters who were just knuckleheads uh, because they, uh, like I said, the, the protests that happened there, it wasn't, he keeps talking about like, oh, this is um, the biggest attack on the Capitol since the White House was burned in 1814. And you're like, well, that, that's a bit of an exaggeration. It's you, you had a guy in a buffalo hat and like 12 others peacefully walking through the, the Capitol after the police let them in. But it was that violence that scuttled what Dr. Navarro and Trump were trying to do to prevent, to expose the election fraud. Uh, and so now, uh, and that was Donald Trump's comment. He's already made some comments. He posted it to Truth Social. Uh, he's he, he's not using Twitter uh, right now, even though I think Elon Musk probably would let him. Uh, but he posted it to Truth Social that he said, said really, he said the big problem with these hearings is they're not talking about the reason there were protests in the first part. They're, they're going through the 250,000 people who showed up and finding the couple dozen who were involved in some troublemaking. Uh, but they're not mentioning, like I said, the elephant in the room is like, why were there 250,000 people uh, out there uh, protesting the election fraud? They're not going to talk about the election fraud. They're not going to talk about Dr. Navarro's report. They're going to put a gag order on Dr. Navarro to keep him uh, so he has to shut up uh, and then bring in whatever police officer or other victims who uh, who were uh, involved in any of the trouble that happened that day. Uh, and I'm not saying that <laughs> any of those uh, people involved in vandalism shouldn't be uh, prosecuted. And according to the law, there's no reason to put them in irons and give them no food and keep them in solitary confinement. Uh, they, they certainly don't treat Black Lives Matter protesters that way. Uh, but like I said, that is the point. Is like I said, they're, they keep resurrecting this story. Um, in order to try to prove that Trump was res uh, responsible for the violence so they can bar him from holding office instead of showing that it was actually Trump and Dr. Navarro who were trying to keep things peaceful so these senators could actually go through the evidence of election fraud. Right. So it really looks like the Democrats are looking ahead to the to the presidential election with, with a lot of these uh, maneuvers here. Would you be able to just briefly place this in the context of Bible prophecy for us? Yeah, we'll put the article in the show notes from our editor-in-chief, What Will Happen After Trump Regains Power. That um, This article it's, uh, was published back in July 2021, so uh, almost a year old now. And that goes through 2 Kings 14 and uh, Amos 7 about these end-time prophecies of, uh, a, of a second, uh, an end-time King Jeroboam II. 
who leads a temporary resurgence in Israel. It identifies Donald Trump as the end time Jeroboam II and then shows that one way or another to fulfill these prophecies, he has to come back to power. And that's really the context to what these hearings uh, are about. And um, and while if we watch the testimony, I mean, it can be kind of discouraging to see uh, a, a lot of the lies being told about what happened at those protests. But if you if you if you could look behind that a little bit, they, they, it is actually kind of encouraging. Uh, and the fact that the fact the fact that the uh, the Democrats keep talking about this and keep talking about this and keep talking about this does reveal a certain amount of desperation on their part because a, a public opinions poll shows that like back when the January 6th thing happened about 33% of Americans thought the election was stolen uh, in the month since then those poll numbers have gone up to actually it's about 40% of Americans so if those polls are accurate it means they've convinced 7% of Americans in the last 18 months who didn't originally believe the election was stolen that it is stolen and now things with like 2,000 mules and Dinesh D'Souza, you're convincing more. So you're, they're convincing more and more Americans that the election was stolen and the, the Democrats are getting scared about that. And so they, they keep trying to hold up this, uh, this insurrection because it's really their only, it's really the only thing they've got to talk about, um, in order to try to keep people believing that Joe Biden is the legitimate president. And it's, it's not working. Uh, more and more people are, are finding out that he wasn't the legitimate president. And, uh, and one way or another, uh, those findings are going to have uh, consequences that will result somehow in Donald Trump coming back to power. What will happen after Trump regains power is the name of that article, and we will leave a link to that in our show notes for today's episode. Thanks very much for that, Andrew. We'll take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about a North Korean weapons testing spree, the state of America's woke military, and more. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Back on May 30th, the lunacy of the United Nations was put on glaring display when North Korea assumed the presidency of the Conference on Disarmament. So this puts North Korea at the head of the table for discussions aimed at transparency on nuclear arms and the missiles to deliver them and, uh, you know, ending nuclear proliferation and preventing nuclear war. And of course, this is preposterous because North Korea is among the world's foremost proliferators of nuclear weapons and illegal delivery systems and all kinds of nuclear violations. And then if we look at the news this week, we see that it really didn't take long for the full absurdity of this appointment to become clear. To learn about the latest on this, we'll go once again to Mihailo Zekic. Well, as you said, uh, the idea of uh, Kim Jong-un and North Korea being in charge of global nuclear disarmament is uh, more and more uh, apparent that it, how absurd it is. On Sunday, uh, North Korea t uh, fired eight short-range uh, ballistic missiles into the sea. They were apparently approaching Japan's exclusive economic zone. And the reason for that was uh, the day before that, 
uh, South Korea and the United States concluded naval exercises in international waters. So the North Korean actions were seen as basically a, uh, a response to America and South Korea with their naval exercises. Now, obviously, North Korea was in the news a lot more a few years ago when Kim Jong-un was threatening to send intercontinental ballistic missiles to American cities, and President Donald Trump promised fire and fury in response. That has cooled off for a while now, but ever since uh, Joe Biden got into the White House, we've seen North Korea ramp up its missile testing program, and even ramping up its uh, nuclear testing program. On June 3rd, Sung Kim, who is uh, America's special envoy with North Korea, announced that North Korea appears to be continuing to make preparations for its seventh nuclear test ever and its first nuclear test since 2017 back during the early Trump years. So as you said, uh, the uh, faith that people put in, well, I shouldn't even say faith. I think it was more of a formality given to North Korea uh, than people actually, uh, for the conference on disarmament position than people actually trusting it, uh, them. But to, but to have faith in North Korea actually going forward and helping the world disarm is more and more ludicrous as we see North Korea, the world's, arguably the world's most volatile nuclear weapon state, except maybe Iran, going full steam ahead with its very uh, scary and controversial nuclear program. Would you be able to uh, briefly put this in the context of Bible prophecy? Um, sure. Well, on October 2017, our cover article was, Does Bible Prophecy Say North Korea Could Trigger World War III? That was, again, during the height of the North Korea scare. And we don't know for sure. Bible prophecy doesn't talk too much about North Korea. But we do know in Matthew 24, verses 21 to 22, talks about a great tribulation that, uh, if not shortened, it would cut off all human life. That wasn't possible until the advent of nuclear weapons. Other prophecies say it's not North Korea that's going to start this. But in verse 6 of Matthew 24, it does talk about wars and rumors of wars happening before the tribulation starts. And the context even talks about these wars scaring people sufficiently. So North Korea, with its volatile nuclear situation, is an interesting case to watch, and especially with South Korea has a new president, Yoon Suk-yeol. His predecessor, Moon Jae-in, was uh, trying to reconcile with North Korea. Yoon Suk-yeol is uh, a North Korea hawk. He's even recently called for America to bring in their nuclear weapons into South Korea to face off against North Korea. So with a more hawkish president in Seoul facing off against Kim Jong-un, who is a very unpredictable and uh, bellicose, who knows what could happen in the Korean peninsula. And it'd be interesting to see what, how these two get along in the coming months and years ahead. Yes, looks like the uh, powder keg there could uh, become far more explosive in the months ahead for sure. We will leave a link in the show notes to the article, Does Bible Prophecy Say North Korea Could Trigger World War III? So you can check that out there if you'd like to. Thanks very much for that, Mahilo. We'll take a look now at the European Parliament working to streamline aspects of the EU's political arm. For this, we'll turn it over once again to Richard Palmer. Yes, Parliament, the European Parliament yesterday voted overwhelmingly on a resolution urging EU leaders to convene a convention uh, to amend or to make a new European treaty. So 355 Parliament members voted for this with 154 opposed. 
uh, and to introduce some fundamental and quite radical changes to the way the EU is run. Now, the European Parliament exists so the European Union can pretend to be a democracy or pretend to be democratic. It doesn't actually have the power to initiate legislation. Um, so that's why this is just a recommendation. They don't have the power to call any kind of convention or to make this happen. But nonetheless, I, it's, still, it's still remarkable and it still shows uh, an indication of the growing appetite across Europe. You know, these are people that are elected democratically uh, for some big changes to the European Union. And they, I think, another thing that's remarkable about this, you know, sometimes the European Union can resort to kind of vague pronouncements on we want more unity. And it's kind of like, okay, yeah, but what does that look like in practice? This was very specific. Uh, and so I think when they've got something very specific like that, there's much more of a chance to, to see this get put into action. And the European Parliament isn't the only one calling for that. And that specific thing is they want to repeal rules that requires unanimity on a lot of big decisions. And that is, in terms of one specific change that you could make to the European Union that would make the biggest difference, that probably is it. You know, to get rid of this idea that on foreign policy, every single one of 27 fractious different nations has to agree. Same with defense policy. And that this is what you see on uh, uh, when it comes to, to Ukraine even, or, or how to deal with Russia. Okay, well, we've got a sanctions package, we'll get it all negotiated. And then Hungary says, well, no, you know, we want this. And sometimes the conditions have nothing to do with what's on the table. You know, we just want more money. Uh, but the fact that any one country can veto any these pieces of regulations for any reason has been a major obstacle toward to the European Union. So you're starting to see a growing push to get this obstacle removed. This push has been there for years, but I think what's making this push stronger now and more impactful now is Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. That this has now become a move from a would be nice to have to an urgent issue. And really that is something we've said to watch for Russia, watch from Russia for years and years. There's a chapter in our Russia and China and Prophecy booklet called Russia Frightens Europe and Fulfills Bible Prophecy really drawing attention to one of the key roles uh, that Russia is going to be playing in Bible prophecy is that uh, they're going to be prompting this European Union to come together as a superpower, as outlined in the Bible, as outlined in chapters like Revelation chapter 17. And that booklet was first published in 1999. I'm not sure, you know, we added bits to it over the years. I don't know if that particular chapter was in there in 1999, but certainly for years and years, if not decades, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has been highlighting this as one of the most important consequences of, of Russia's actions. Now we're seeing that played out, and this is just one small example of that, but it's Bible prophecy in action and the reliability of those forecasts and of your Bible being shown very clearly just from the news this week. We will leave a link to Russia and China and prophecy in our show notes. This is a free booklet. And uh, as Mr. Palmer just said there, it really shows the significance of all the changes that uh, Russia's war on Ukraine is, uh, you know, is making around the world, including the effect that it's having on Europe. So please order your free copy of Russia and China and Prophecy if you don't yet have one of those. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We'll take a look now at Syria, where Israeli airstrikes have apparently shut down the country's main international airport. For this, we'll go once again to Brent. Yeah, this, these are strikes that took place uh, earlier this morning at 4.20 
a.m. local time, and uh, there's some satellite imagery that's just came in in the last couple of hours, which shows six different um, uh, holes in the in the runway, the two separate runways at the the international airport at Damascus uh, in Damascus, which has shut down all. Uh, flights, international flights in and out of Damascus. I think there's flights being diverted to Aleppo um, and elsewhere. Um, However, this is just really interesting timing for for Syria and Israel. Um, There's been no official word from the Israelis that they are behind these attacks. However, last month on the the IDF, um, one of the IDF Arabic spokesmen, they came out and said that Uh, Syria is choosing to put its civilians in danger by accepting flights from Iran uh, that holds uh, weapons that are destined for Hezbollah. Of course, Hezbollah works from mainly out of Lebanon and Israel is always trying to cut uh, off highly sophisticated arms from reaching uh, Hezbollah because they're the target for those will be Israel. And so this Damascus is and the Syrian regime have been a middleman for some time and Israel basically warned them last week or a month ago that says you better stop this or else or else. And uh, I think this morning we saw some Israeli strong Israeli response uh, against against what was happening. So how do you view this story in terms of the prophetic significance? Well, I think um the big point is that we, based on a prophecy found in, in Psalm 83, we do expect that Syria is going to, and, and eventually Lebanon as well, is going to move away from the Iranians. And so we've been watching the Syrian civil war to be part of the catalyst that leads to this. And and so we haven't known how it's come about, going to come about, but as you see the Syrians being used by the Iranians as a middleman to transit arms to Hezbollah, and Israel not letting that happen, and basically saying to Syria, if you let this happen, we're going to take out your country. We are going to keep on working and attacking you for being the transit point. It really does impact the decision-making by uh, Bashar al-Assad, the leader of the, of Syria. And there's been really lots of moves lately to show that he is looking elsewhere, away from the Iranians, um, because he knows that there's going to be really no peaceful future for his state if a relationship continues with the Iranians, because the Israelis just can't let it happen because it's their survival at stake. A really good article that talks about this and the the moves that are being made by Bashar al-Assad to move away from Iran is an article, How the Syrian Crisis is Ending, that was just written up uh, a couple of months ago. We will leave a link in our show notes to How the Syrian Crisis is Ending. It elucidates much of what Brent just uh, mentioned there, so please check the show notes out for that. Thanks very much for that, Brent. For our final story of the show today, we'll look at the Department of Defense here in the United States and a sobering glimpse into what their priorities have become. For this, we'll go back to Andrew. Yeah, this is uh, Pride Month, as they call it, the around the world where many different organizations are are celebrating homosexuality and transgenderism and, and many other forms of sexual perversions. And sadly, the U.S. military is one of those organizations, along with Disney, State Farm, Google, Apple, the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, the Council of Foreign Nations, and hundreds of other work corporations, the Pentagon has uh, set aside all month uh, for celebrating homosexuality. The Marine Corps, being one of the more conservative branches of the military, was probably the least most subtle with this. Basically, just uh, 
tweeting out uh, a picture of a combat helmet with some rainbow colored bullets strapped to it. But uh, some of the other uh, branches of the service were, were very much even more in your face with the, the Air Force um, sending out a black and white photo of a female airman giving a salute with a rainbow uh, adorned arm. Uh, the Army going even edgier with a, with a biracial lesbian couple uh, in white T-shirts and a rainbow uh, and rainbow face paint on. Uh, and then the uh, U.S. Space Force, that being, I guess, the new fourth branch of the uh, uh, armed services, even having a, a queer space uh, emblem embraced across a dark void. So definitely going full on out for this uh, this transgender, queer, homosexual uh, agenda. We've written about this on the, the trumpet before. One of the articles we can put in the show notes uh, is an article titled A Woke Military Weakens America. Uh, and that, I think, goes through uh, some of the other things that are happening uh, before Pride Month with uh, the military just prioritizing uh, getting new uniforms for, uh, for pregnant soldiers and uh, and sending out uh, making books on critical race theory required reading, uh, and then going back through um, prophecies in, uh, in Isaiah three mainly uh, about God taking away the strong leadership from Israel. One of those things God says He'll take away the the man of war from Israel because of their sins. Uh, and definitely when you're you're looking at just the emphasis where the the Biden administration is putting more uh, emphasis on giving soldiers access to uh, sex reassignment surgeries and um, and hormone uh, conversion therapy and transgender rights than he is actually on things like military preparedness. And that that is a big reason why uh, America is in retreat from the world <laughs> uh, around the world. I mean, I've seen other reports that China's looking at new ways to... Uh, to uh, invade Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan's only hope is looking to America to defend it. And, um, and their new emphasis on uh, jumpsuits for pregnant soldiers and uh, sex reassignment surgery for American soldiers probably isn't giving the Taiwanese uh, a ton of confidence that uh, America is the type of power that's going to be able to uh, defend them from communist aggression. Yeah, I actually saw a Gallup poll yesterday that was surprising to me. It showed that uh, among Generation Z Americans, those are the ones born from 1997 to 2012, and more than 20% of them said that they identified as LGBTQ, 20.8%. Uh, and then with millennials, the people one generation older, it was uh, over 10% who identified as LGBTQ. So some figures there that were higher than I would have expected. And and with those kinds of numbers, I guess these various branches of the U.S. military that you're discussing here, they're, they're not altogether off base with these Pride Month celebrations. Uh, but Andrew has written an article. It's called A Woke Military Weakens America. We will leave a link to that in our show notes for today's program. And uh, we'll have links there to all the various articles and other pieces of literature that we've discussed today. That's on thetrumpet.com. Well, we are coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please email any questions or comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Mr. Richard Palmer, Mihailo Zekic, and Brent Nartigal. And we'll leave you today with these words from John Paul Richter. 
For sleep, riches, and health to be truly enjoyed, they must be interrupted. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.